Greetings and welcome to Hear Her Sports, the podcast about phenomenal female athletes. This week, we have the absolutely wonderful, highly decorated Olympian and current president of the Women's Sports Foundation, Alana Myers-Taylor. Alana, a bobsledder, is a four-time world champion, eight-time world championship medalist, three-time Olympic medalist, and 2015 World Cup champion. In 2015, Alana became the first woman to earn a spot on the U.S. national team, competing with the men as a four-man bobsled pilot. And she is still very actively training and competing full-on with her sights on Beijing 2022. Alana has been working with the Women's Sports Foundation since 2010, when she received the first of many WSF travel and training fund grants. She's also served on the Foundation's Athlete Advisory Panel and is currently the Foundation's president. Check out the show notes for a link to a full list of Alana's accolades. There are way too many for this introduction, including a time with USA Rugby. In the episode, we talk about competing in the four-man bobsled and why that is so important to her, big, big long-term goals, some terrific insider's view of the Women's Sports Foundation, concussions, taekwondo, and how violent the bobsled ride is. I'd never heard a description of the sport quite like hers. This is also the third episode in our mini-series about coaching. Alana and I take a look at some of the findings in the recently released report by Women's Sports Foundation and Nike titled Coaching Through a Gender Lens, Maximizing Girls' Play and Potential. This study and talking to Alana is a really important reminder of the power of sports regardless of the level achieved. As she points out, 96% of C-suite women played organized sports in their youth. 96%, that is just stunning. Before we get to that conversation, a quick note that Hear Her Sports will be taking a month break. We have some new projects in the works, so subscribe to the podcast wearever you listen and subscribe to the newsletter at hearhersports.com to stay updated. Also subscribe to Instagram and Twitter at hearhersports because we'll be posting some exclusive new audio clips during our time off. Well, let's get to it. Welcome, Alana. Thanks for making the time to be here. I think that's awesome. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and pleasure. Sure. Back at you. You know, the photo of you on Twitter and your husband is so cute. Can I say that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah. In those outfits, it's really great. <laughs> yeah. And those outfits are really comfortable, too. So it works on both fronts. <laughs> right. Well, we'll definitely want to talk about the new coaching report that was released by the Women's Sports Foundation, where you're currently the president. But first, I want to find out a little bit more about you and your sport. And I just saw on social media that you're back to dryland training as of a couple of weeks. So and this is after a recent concussion. So what is your training like now? So during the summers from about April to October, there's no ice open anywhere in the world. So there's no bobsledding taking place. So we just focus on dry land training, running and lifting to get strong and fast for the upcoming season. So right now it's about four hours, four to six hours a day of just short sprints and really heavy lifting. We say we train like Olympic sprinters and Olympic weightlifters all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you're totally full on right now you're feeling good full on feeling good still working through some things with the concussion that would affect my ability to drive a bobsled but not affect my dry land training so able to do everything as far as that concern Um, my work also at a computer is a little limited but that's also not a prerequisite for dry land training so fortunately I'm, i'm back to 
full physical activity. Right. You know, I've had a concussion and it was pretty bad. And it's sort of interesting to hear, you know, more discussions about concussions. And I think one thing that I thought was interesting when I had my concussion was, you know, I looked normal and in many ways I felt normal, but I would end up in situations where, you know, obviously things were going awry. Mm -hmm. So what do you think that people really need to know about concussions? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is that they all present differently. So one of the biggest problems I have with my concussion is emotional and social situations. Mm -hmm. So as a result of my concussions, every time I experience it, my emotions get a little erratic and social social situations become much more difficult. So I get a lot of anxiety, which is problematic because I'm in social situations all the time, especially now as my role as the president of the Women's Sports Foundation and some of the other positions I have, I'm in situations where I'm social all the time. So sometimes if I'm not as engaged as I would like to be, I, I want to just scream. I was like, I, it's not you. Don't worry. It's not anything like that. It's just I'm having a difficult time with this right now. And, and so that's kind of what happens to me, but it, it presents differently in every single concussion. And that's the difficult thing is, is there's still a lot we don't understand about the brain and how concussions and brain injuries actually work. Yeah, it's actually sort of fascinating if you're not going through it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so a little bit back to your training, and you said four to six hours of weightlifting and sprinting. That sounds like a lot. Yeah, but it's um, we find ways to make it interesting. And at the same time, we're not running miles. So it might be like today, for example, I had hill sprints. So I'm taking five minutes in between sets or whatever to make sure they're maximal efforts. So included in that four hours is rest. Like I'm not running for two hours straight because <laughs> that would be marathon training, not right. public training. So there are little breaks in there here in between, but it is pretty intensive. And when do you start competing again and getting back onto the ice? So we won't actually get back onto the ice until October. Mm-hmm. So it seems like a pretty long time to be just doing dry lane training. And it does get a little monotonous, but it's important because we need every minute of that training during the summer because during the season, even though we're trying to keep up our training, we won't get a lot of time or a lot of great weather to really do the things that get us the strongest and fastest push these 400 pound sleds. Right. And I saw also on social media that you're doing martial arts now. Yes. Tell me about that. So uh, part of my recovery from my concussion is, is they want me to try some different things. And martial arts, the idea came about uh, because it's a different movement pattern and also because it would force me to engage my brain in learning and learning different things. And also it would make me have to focus different ways with my eyes because one of my problems with my concussions, too, is my eye tracking and things like that. So martial arts was a great way to try and engage that different side of my brain and also rehab at the same time. So I don't do any fighting or anything like that. We're not taking hits to the head or anything like that. But uh, <laughs> it is, it, it's pretty cool. And I'm having a lot of fun with it. Yeah. How do you like it? What, what, what have you learned so far? Oh, I've learned so much. So I'm doing American Taekwondo, not Olympic style Taekwondo or anything like that. I, I, I've had a couple comments. It's like, Oh, why don't you try for the Olympics? I was like, I don't think you understand. You have to be a black belt in world taekwondo and all this stuff. No, I'm just doing this for fun. (laughs) Everything doesn't have to be about the Olympics. So just learning a lot about self-defense. And, you know, I've never been in a fist fight or anything before. I've never been in a fight. So just learning some skills to know if if I ever, I mean, I'm 34 now. Heaven forbid I ever have to use these skills. Now I actually know I have skills behind me if I need them. 
Well, you know, you've been active all your life, and I think it's totally awesome and actually a little funny that you're able to switch sports so easily. You know, like you were really high caliber softball player and then just decided you'd do bobsledding. Yeah, you make it sound a lot easier than it was. <laughs> but that's the cool thing about bobsled is it's a sport that nobody really grows up doing with the exception of like a couple people who might live in Lake Placid, New York or Park City, Utah, where our tracks are. Nobody really grows up doing this. So we take athletes from all other sports and convert them to bobsledders. So as long as you have the athleticism, we can teach you how to bobsled. And it's really one of those kind of sports that allows that. But part of the reason like I'm seemingly able to switch sports so easily, which I guarantee you it's not as easy as it might seem is because I was active all my life in a lot of different sports. I think nowadays kids tend to specialize, but I was never put in a position where I was specialized. Um, I played basketball, soccer, softball, track, you name it, I played it. And that was really because of the encouragement of my parents to do different things and have different interests, even if they're all in the sports realm. Right. And talk about growing up as a sporty kid. And and I think mostly I'm interested in the support that you got from your family and how that came about and also the coaching that you had. Yeah. So full disclosure, my dad was a running back in the NFL for the Falcons. So I did grow up in in and around sports and, and knowing the impact it can have on your lives. I mean, and you have good genes. Yeah, I have great <laughs> genes. Uh, but really, you know, even as as physically active as my dad was, it really was my mom who played a lot much larger role in my athletic development because my mom was a housewife and she's there day in and day out. She's the one driving me to practices. She was the one waking me up in the morning. Although sometimes it was me waking her up in the morning, say, "Hey, mom, we got to go." But also she coached me and my father played a a huge role in my development on the athletic field as well. But for the most part, my mom was there day in and day out coaching me and actually the coach of some of my teams growing up. What year was that? Because it's yeah. What year was that? Oh, um, goodness gracious. So I started playing softball at the age of nine. And then I think my mom started coaching me around the age of 11 or 12. So that had to be somewhere a little after 96. Mm -hmm. I don't exactly remember, but somewhere around there. Right. And and was your mom sporty when she was growing up? Yes, my mom was. She played softball as well. She was a cheerleader. You know, there were a lot less options for girls to be athletically involved at that time. And, And, you know, for her, even though she was very competitive and things like that, it wasn't really an option to go in college and play. And you're talking about this is not too long after Title IX, so the opportunities were limited. So she never played past high school or anything like that. She definitely could have. She definitely had the talent, but that, that just it just didn't work out. Right. I always find it so impressive when women, you know, pre-Title IX end up being very sporty because it was such a different situation and they really had to fight to get it and also to know that that was something that interested them. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's it's what we're losing a little bit of perspective about. We're losing those stories a little bit of what women had to go through to get those opportunities. Because now you have so many more offerings for women and girls in sports. Whether we take advantage of it, of course, that's what we're trying to work every day for the Women's Sports Foundation to make sure we have those opportunities and make sure women and, and girls are taking advantage of it. Uh, but that wasn't always an opportunity that was so easily afforded. Yeah, so let's let's switch to talking about that report. And I don't want to skip sort of the obvious starting point, which is why is it important 
to find out why more girls aren't participating and why is it important to get so many girls to participate and give everybody an opportunity? I think one of the biggest reasons is just the benefit we've seen sports have. Not only engaging in physical activity and being physically active, we we obviously know the health outcomes for those people who continue physical activity throughout their lives. Obviously, that's something we want everyone to do, but also things like building self-esteem, learning how to work in teams, confidence, all these great benefits that sport has. It's really important that we keep girls engaged in these activities, girls and women, so they're able to have these other benefits. And I think I can't remember the exact statistic, but there's an overwhelming number, I want to say like 90% or something like that, of women in the C-suite who played sports, who grew up playing sports. And so that just goes to show you there's an overwhelming amount of evidence that says how much people who participate in sports can have long-term benefits and outside of the physical health sector. What specifically? I think the biggest thing that we've seen recently is really diving into the effects that sport has on mental health Mm -hmm. you know obviously i'd be amiss if i didn't mention there are some problematic areas in sport you know we have seen recently there's been more publicized cases of abuse and and physical and sexual abuse and obviously those are problematic and and those obviously do not have positive benefits on mental health but Outside of those type of situations, we've seen that sport can have a huge impact on mental health with lower rates of depression, lower rates of mental health disorders, and just overall more sense of well-being and and higher self-esteem and confidence. Mm -hmm. I did a project with high school kids, and one of the things that struck me was, you know, I would ask them how involved they were with social media, and they all looked at me like I was crazy because they had no time for that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it ended up being like a huge benefit that, you know, I certainly wouldn't have predicted. Yeah, and I think the other thing is it, it makes you have that type of interaction with people that it's seemingly missing now. Like now if you go into a restaurant and you're seeing a family, a lot of times you'll see an entire family sitting there on a table together all on their cell phones. And we're <laughs> right. losing that day-to-day facial interaction. Well, in sports, other than esports, I guess, um, you have to have that type of interaction. You are forced to work together in a daily basis uh, with people you might not have, you might not have the same religious beliefs, the same political beliefs, and you're forced to work together on a common goal. So in today's polarized society, I, I think it's incredibly valuable. And I want to emphasize, too, that we're not just talking about girls and women who will go on to some sort of Olympic career. We're talking about everybody. Yes, I, I think that's, a thing that sometimes gets confused because a lot of times growing up, we tell boys, you know, you're doing this to make it to the NBA or the NFL. And there's so many opportunities for little boys to grow up and be professional athletes. And there's not as many opportunities. That's the reality for women and girls. And even for boys, the chances of them actually going professional are pretty low. We don't want to have sport as only an opportunity for those people who are going to the Olympic level, because that's not reality. That's not realistic to put that kind of pressure on somebody that the only benefit you can get out of this is making an Olympic team, because that's not realistic. So there's so many other benefits that we want to talk about, and we want to focus on the majority of people who are going to engage in sports, and that's not the Olympians. Right, right. So let's talk about this report. It was in a partnership with Nike and the Women's Sports Foundation. It was recently released. So tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, so the report, we really dove in and and talked to girls and really listened to girls. And that was the biggest thing is there's a lot of studies out there 
about women in sports and, and female athletes, but we really took the time to listen to girls. And that was really important. And to hear what they're actually saying about their participation in sports. And number one, what we found is girls want to play sports and girls have the desire to go to the next level, play in high school and play collegiately. And, and that's something that doesn't need to be underestimated. It seems very simple in, in finding that, but it's, it's very important because I think sometimes still in society and still uh, we have the social stigma that girls aren't interested. The reason there's not more girls playing is because they're just not interested. And, and that's not the case. That's not what we found. You know, that's so interesting. Um, yeah, that's super interesting. I think because I'm involved in sports, I sort of forget that not everyone understands that girls do want to do it. Yeah, and I think some of the other things that we found is there are barriers to sport for girls, and and some of them are societal. Some of them include, you know, boys making fun of me and and those type of things. And not only do girls want to engage in sport, but they want to be competitive. They want to get out there and be rough and tough. And I think that's also something that societally we don't often think about. We think girls just want to go out there and play just to run around and be social and things like that. But what we're actually seeing is girls want to be competitive. They want to be pushed. They want to have goals and they want to set goals and and enjoy sport for what it is. But they also want to be in these environments that push them to be better. Yeah. Talk about the barriers that you found. Yeah. So like I mentioned, one of the major ones is that piece about the societal barriers about them not them feeling societal pressure that they can't be successful in sport. But another one is is that coaching aspect is is them not being in environments that allow them to be competitive, to have fun, and to actually grow and develop on their skill set. I think that's the biggest piece of this is actually realizing that coaching makes a huge difference, especially in girls' sports. And I think there's this perception that you have to coach girls and boys differently. And yes, that is true. There are some a little bit of differences, but at the same time, it's not this big difference is like, oh, if you coach boys' sports or, or men's sports, you can't coach girls sports it just might take a little bit of tweaking but coaching makes a huge difference in participation of female athletes and one of the things that the report says is there is a there's a real lack of female coaches oh and that's actually been my experience as well i had my mom coaching me growing up but i also had some other coaches but most of those coaches were men and then even collegiately i had mostly women coaches but on the professional side of things it's been all men i think uh my first year i might have had a female coach but they were never in a head coaching position and even to this day there are very few coaches internationally in my sport that are females and and i can't even think of a single one that's a head coach and a female. Right. It's, it's really interesting. So what can parents and school teachers and coaches do to encourage more participation and make, you know, make the participation really work? I think that one of the biggest things is, is parents need to be involved. And, and we're not talking about helicopter parents <laughs> or anything like that, but just be involved in your child's athletic career and just be involved and, and make sure they're having coaching and the support that they want. And, and whether that's an environment where they're just wanting to have fun, but we found that all girls, it sounds cliche, but girls just want to have fun. But at the same time they do, they want to have fun. They want to participate in sports. They want the competitive aspects and parents can help encourage that, but also help 
hold coaches accountable for creating those types of positive atmospheres. That's really the position that we want coaches to be in, to create these positive atmospheres, and, and parents can have a large role in it. And to be honest, in youth sports, a lot of the coaches are parents. Most of the coaches are parents of one athlete or another, and, and those parents being that involved in the coaching can actually have a huge role in whether girls stay in the sports. Did you find in your study that that the recommendations that you're making for the girls' sports are different than what you would recommend for the boys? Or is it just trying to get the girls' sports up to where the boys' sports are? I don't feel like the recommendations are any different than we would make for boys' sports. I just think you have to be more cognizant about the differences as far as women actually wanting to be competitive. And and as I mentioned previously, I think that's been a stigma of of what I've seen personally in my own life is, is males aren't sure how to coach females and if they actually like want to be pushed and, and want to and want to like set these higher goals or stuff like that. So they're kind of hesitant. Mm. Um, I think what we've seen with men's sport and boys sports is I think we've seen it go the other way where we have a lot of abusive coaches and we have a lot of, you know, I think the stereotypical example is the guy screaming at the athletes on the football field <laughs> right, about right not needing a water break or something like that. And I think that kind of behavior needs to be a little bit reined in as well. In this study, you know, we were making those kind of recommendations that I would make to Ben's and boys sports as well. So it sort of sounds like you're saying that coaches and parents still think girls are fragile. Yes. And, and from personal perception and, and being in a sport where I, I do try and compete against the men, I have seen that firsthand and, you know, it, it's crazy to me that we're in 2019 and, and, you know, we've got all these ads going on and we've got all these campaigns going on about how strong women are and particularly Nike's campaign and all this stuff. And we're still being questioned about whether or not women are strong enough to compete. It, it's kind of crazy. And, and some of this, I have to admit when reading over the study, some of it is like, oh yeah, that's common sense to me, but I'm also a female in sport. So it, it's, it's kind of difficult to really take a look at the data and take a look at what we're seeing and, and be like, okay, this is something that not all people understand. And this is something that we need to break down to make sure that women and girls are given the proper coaching and proper environments that they need to be successful. I had similar reaction of like, really, people think that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's very easy to like, you know, being in somewhat of like an echo chamber because we're in the business and you're like, oh, duh. Of, of <laughs> right. course, of course, girls want to set goals and improve their skills. I don't understand. But that's not the reality for everyone. And not everybody's as deeply involved as we are. Right, right. And the study also found that girls of color are facing even greater barriers. Could you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of barriers, whether you know, we've seen people of color have lower economic opportunities as well, and that plays a role into it. But also, a lot of this is societal as well, whether or not there's perceived as certain sports that are more appropriate for certain minorities and, and certain ethnic groups and things like that, all the way until um, how they're approached and how these different situations that they may encounter as an athlete are handled by the coaches. So it, it's very interesting. And that's on the Women's Sports Foundation side, where we particularly have programs in place to try and target minorities to increase their participation, because we do recognize there are differences. And, and personally, growing up as a woman of color, I, I've seen it firsthand 
that there are differences to the experiences of minorities in sport. You mentioned money. How big a barrier is money right now in sport in you know, 2019 with a lot of travel teams and whatnot? Yeah, unfortunately, I think it's becoming an increasing barrier. I think the more we specialize and the more we are trying to get athletes to engage in sport with the intention of going Olympic or going professional, that we're losing, that a lot of people are losing opportunities because there's so much more money poured into youth sport. It's getting, quite frankly, really out of hand. But I think there's a lot of positive groups working towards having different solutions. And and we're one of them at the Women's Sports Foundation, making sure those opportunities are affordable because it is a huge barrier. I was was speaking to a colleague the other day and for their children to play travel ball for one kid for a year, it was $12,000. Wow. And that's one. And, And imagine if you have three kids and all of them want to play travel ball, you know, you're talking $36,000 just to play competitive sports. And, and that doesn't even include, you know, what it costs to educate them and feed them and clothe them. So, you know, it, it's, it is becoming a real barrier to sports participation. And I assume that you're finding that, you know, regular education, you know, schools don't have a lot of gym programs anymore. Yeah. And that's very unfortunate. The decreased amount of gym time, the decreased amount of recess time for even younger kids, you know, because that's really growing up. That's really where I was introduced to a lot of different sports. That's really where I was encouraged to just play and just explore. And I think that might, I, I don't have any data to support this, but that might be part of the reason we're seeing more specialization is because a lot of kids aren't introduced to a variety of sports anymore. Mm, inter- yeah, interesting. We touched on it a little bit, but could you talk about sort of your thoughts about competition versus participation and take that wherever you want? Yeah. So first, I am very, very supportive of participation on all levels. I think we need to create atmospheres where women and girls particularly can compete or can be in sport with a variety of different goals. And I think it's perfectly okay if your child may not be the greatest, let's say, soccer player, but they want to be involved, they want to be in in the game, and they just want to be physically active. I believe we need to create spaces for them as well. Our studies show that girls want to be competitive, but what level of competition varies based off of what's realistic for the kids. So what that actually means could vary a little bit, but they want to be competitive and they want to be able to be in atmospheres to work on their skill sets and things like that. So I think about competition, though, and and think about those higher levels. There does need to be a space for that, too. There does need to be a space for kids to go on and, and, and try to be aspirational and make the Olympic team and make collegiate teams and things like that. So there does need to be that type of space. But we just need to create atmospheres that cater to both. Yeah. You have some experience competing with men because you relatively recently took part in the four man and Mm -hmm. by four man I mean man (laughs) and Mm -hmm. you you were on that team so talk about that and in a classroom champions video you said that women approach goals and winning differently and I was really fascinated by that yeah so it has been the highlight of my bobsled career which a lot of people are are stunned when I say that because it's like oh well you've won three olympic medals how could how could competing in four man be the highlight of your career when you haven't won any medals at the olympic level for this but it's really for me uh, part of my goal in bobsled is to leave the sport better than when I started and for me 
competing in four man with and against the guys is part of my legacy to show that women can be competitive with the men and women can compete on the same level given the opportunity. And it's really part and testament to my hard work, women who came before me's hard work and, and women who compete alongside of me to really push the International Federation to change their minds and to stop thinking of women and, and placing these barriers around women that are completely arbitrary. So it's been a joy to be able to compete, but also it's one of those kind of things where it's like, yes, the first step was getting in the door and having the opportunity. Now the next step is actually getting out there and being more competitive and, and, and being at that level where I could be on the podium. Yeah. In the video, you were talking about how your approaches were different from the men. So mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that. And also like, you know, what have you learned from them and maybe what they've learned from you? Yeah. So my approaches are a little bit differently because I find that women tend to be a little bit more realistic about potential outcomes and about setting goals and standards and things like that. So a woman will look at a race and say, okay, we've been finishing in the top 10 every single World Cup. We are most likely going to finish in the top 10 in this race. I have to do X, Y, and Z to make sure that happens. And I'm going to go after it and, and set those goals and, and do everything I need to. Whereas what I found with the guys, which is, is somewhat I, I, I love this aspect, is there's just this unbridled confidence sometimes is we'll go in a race and, and we might have been finishing 20th all year, but the guys will swear we're going to somehow figure out and win this race, um, <laughs> which is, is I quite love incredible. That. <laughs> yeah, and I do too. And, and sometimes I wish women had more of that unbridled confidence. But at the same time, sometimes I wish the guys were a little bit more realistic because I, I feel like it might push them a little bit harder in, in the gym and in the weight room and right. say, hey, winning a race doesn't happen overnight. You're not just going to all of a sudden wake up and figure it out. And I, I feel like women have that perspective to know that, hey, you know, I've got to put in the effort and the time and, and work. And not to say that men don't, but I, I feel like a lot more men rely on their confidence to all of a sudden have a miraculous result, which is <laughs> it's pretty cool. Right. Are they learning from you? I mean, have they gotten anything from that? I hope so. <laughs> I, I know because I compete with my husband. Um, he learned a lot from me and, and from competing with me. And so it's been interesting to see and to understand his side of things and to understand how even his own perceptions of what women can achieve have a little bit altered. I think he's always been my biggest fan, always been my biggest supporter, and always known that, you know, if I want to do something, I'm going to make it happen. But to see it happen in real time, to be in the sled with me and to feel what my rides feel like compared to some of the guys, he's he's definitely been impressed. What is a ride like? Oh, it is extremely violent. I think the best way to describe it is being shoved in a metal garbage can and kicked down a rocky hill. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is not comfortable. And you think with four man, it's we have 250 needle nose sharp spikes on the bottom of our feet. And in four man, everybody has to load in the sled and try to not nick each other. But everybody's cutting each other up with these spikes. You're all sitting on top of each other. And then on top of it, the ride itself is violent. So you get some pretty interesting um, scars going down in a bobsled. Are you beat up all the time? Kind of, but I feel like your body kind of gets used to it. And as women, this is another interesting example. I think men have the aspect of, oh, they want to prove they're tough. So they don't pad the sleds. It's like taboo to pad up a men's sled. 
And how it works is our sleds are made of carbon fiber or fiberglass or things like that. But you can add padding into the inside to kind of insulate it. And as women, because we're smaller and we use the exact same size sled as men, we usually have to add padding just from the pure aspect so we're not moving around too much in the sled. But we also add padding because if we don't have to make this ride hurt, why would we? Uh, Whereas the men... They're like, oh, well, we don't need to pad the sleds. We need to prove we're tougher and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, why? This makes no sense. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. (laughs) You mentioned this already a little bit, but what kind of impact do you want to have long term? I think my biggest goal is to go out there and leave sport in general, not just bobsled, better than when I found it. And that's something that's very important to me. It's been important to me my entire life because I know at one day I'm going to have to retire. And I know one day, even though I might be written history books because of my achievements so far, I know one day my name will be forgotten and all that kind of stuff. But I want whatever I've done throughout my career to live on. I want the legacy that I've created as far as women being able to compete with men, as far as women deserving various opportunities, for instance, in bobsled, to have multiple medal opportunities. I want those kind of things to live on. Um, So that's really what I work day in and day out to do. And that's also why working with the Women's Sports Foundation is so important to me, because I I know the different sport has made in my life. And it's important to me that those opportunities are afforded to women and girls for their lives as well, because I know the difference and the impact that it can make. When were you first aware of gender inequity in sport, maybe, or in general? And when did that become an important issue for you? I think as a female athlete, you can't help but be aware of it very early. So I can remember at the age of nine, even before that, actually, at the age of seven or eight, is I learned about sport through male athletes. So my favorite athlete growing up was Ken Griffey Jr. And I saw him playing in Major League Baseball, but there were no women in Major League Baseball. So I didn't even know that there was women's baseball at that time. I thought you just uh, men played baseball. And I was told that growing up too, is men played baseball, women played softball. So it never really occurred to me to pursue baseball because I was like, well, women just don't do it. And now obviously I've learned otherwise, but I thought women just played softball. So even seeing that difference, even being able to see male athletes day in and day out on the television competing in the sports they love and to be told I didn't have that opportunity at such an early age, obviously I knew there was a difference among genders and it it became important to me because it just never made sense to me. It never made sense to me why I was told that I couldn't play baseball. Hmm. So you're going to be the president of the Women's Sports Foundation for the year. So what are your, like, what's your big focus for this, this time? So we have a couple of, of big focuses. One of them is really engaging male athlete allies, those male athletes who are really doing a lot of positive work uh, within women's sport to try and promote the women's sport. Because I think that's a population that is very important for our continued growth. And we want to make sure we're including them in the conversation as well, because there are a lot of male athletes doing good work. And also engaging transgender athletes and trying to start figuring out where they fit into the scope of things. I think in order to do that, we have to have them at the table. We have to have their voice present. So we're really working to engage them. Other things is we really want to make sure we're promoting women's sports and providing uh, more advocacy and, and letting people know that at the Women's Sports Foundation, we are a resource to help people find 
different pathways to fight these issues, whether it's a collegiate sport athlete trying to figure out how to navigate Title IX, or whether it's an Olympic or professional athlete trying to figure out how to get pay equity. You know, those are the type of things that the Women's Sports Foundation looks at, and we can be that body to help people out. So we're really working to spread awareness about the foundation itself. So those athletes that you mentioned could call the Women's Sports Foundation and say, hey, I'm having this issue. What can I do? So we don't actually, so we're not lawyers. Well, we do have people with legal backgrounds on our staff, but we aren't going to provide the legal advice, but we can point you in the right direction for resources. And and we also do a lot of research so we can show you and provide some of the sources that we have, regardless of whatever issue that might be occurring. Right. And you mentioned wanting to get more male allies. Tell me a little bit more about that and what that would look like. Yeah, so we have an athletes advisory panel and the athletes advisory panel actually meets quarterly and we advise the foundation on different policies that we have in place, different things we want to execute throughout the year. And we we want to include those populations, male athlete allies and, and transgender athletes in those types of conversations to really try and figure out what more we can be doing for women and girls in sport. And because you're involved with the Women's Sports Foundation and have been, can you talk about sort of where we are in 2019 in terms of women's sports? I mean, there's so much happening sort of in bigger picture, like in USA Hockey and soccer and the WNBA. So from your sort of bigger perspective, what are you seeing and what are your hopes? From a bigger perspective, we are definitely in a good spot for women's sports, but I definitely think we still have a lot more work to do. I think it was very awesome to see firsthand and to know a lot of the women's hockey players to see that they were successful in getting equal pay and and getting more rights for their female athletes. And I think the more and more women are able to make those strides, the more and more women's sports are going to grow. Uh, But I do also recognize that there's still a lot of things we need to work on, you know, whether it's the hockey women protesting the leagues and and trying to create one cohesive league or the struggles we face in the National Pro Fast Pitch League or in the Women's Soccer League. There's still a lot of room for growth. And it's really about continuing to find avenues for support and continuing to make sure that people know that providing women's sporting opportunities at the next level, at the professional and Olympic level are important. Do you talk about that at the Women's Sports Foundation about, you know, the changing times and what can be done? Oh, yes. We cover the whole array of sports with some days. It's kind of cool because as president, you know, one minute we might be focused on a grassroots level. The next minute we're on the phone talking about you know, what's going on with the WNBA and their collective bargaining agreement. So we really cover the entire array of sport, which has been pretty cool as a president. And a lot of our athlete advisory panel members are very high up within their respective sports. So they're actively involved in those types of things, in the women's hockey protests, in the U.S. soccer protests and those type of things. So it is very interesting to hear the perspective firsthand of what's going on on the ground. And are the different sports speaking to one another? I mean, the people that are like organizing on the big picture, what's happening in hockey, what's happening in soccer and basketball and softball, are all those women talking to one another and sort of strategizing? 
part of the Women's Sports Foundation is that we do provide that opportunity is when we have our annual gala every year we have an annual gala where we pull together a lot of athletes and they're able to meet and they're able to have those conversations. We also do a leadership connection event there where we go over different things going on in sport and also help athletes find different pathways to transition out of sport. So athletes are able to connect through our organization. But I think the bottom line is is our founder and creator, Billie Jean King, talks to everybody. And when you have her as an example, when you have her going to U.S. hockey and going to U.S. softball and, and soccer and all these organizations and saying, hey, you have to fix this. When that's your example, you can't help but take these issues to heart and and feel like it's your obligation to try and connect with all the different organizations and try and find a pathway for women's sports to be better as a whole. I love that she speaks up and she's always on social media telling all the different (laughs) sports what to do. It's so great. She's great. And I can't, I, I, I can't even imagine what a day in her life looks like and how she's able to have be on the pulse of all these different sports and be so educated and so knowledgeable about it. And I love the fact that she's able to speak up and that she does speak up about so many different issues going on in sport and going on in greater society. I, you know, I love her to death. And I think the more people who know about her and know about her story and, and are able to follow her and use her as a role model, the better this entire world would be. Yeah, I can't I can't disagree with you. That's awesome. She's great. Yeah. So what are your long-term goals? 10 years, 5 years? So <laughs> I I want a bobsled as long as I possibly can. I want a bobsled till the wheels fall off is what I say. <laughs> but if the wheels are starting to fall off, I'm getting a little bit older, so that might be sooner than I would like, but it you know, right right now, realistically, it looks like 2022 might be my last games, unfortunately. But after that, I'd really like to continue working in sports. My long-term goal one day is to be the CEO of the U.S. Olympic Committee. Um, I know right now that would be a very charged and a very difficult position to have. And I know, regardless of, of time, it'd be a very difficult position to have. But I really feel like that's a position where you can have a lot of positive impact on sport. So that's the end goal. How I get there is the next question, because I just want to continue to have a positive impact on sport and a positive impact on women's sport in general. I'm super impressed that you're already saying that that's your goal. I mean, that's a big goal. And to state it out loud, that's awesome. No, it's a huge goal, but uh, (laughs) I'm not one to, to go after small goals. So I, I tend to set my sights really, really big and, and do everything I can to get there. And at the end of the day, if I if I don't attain it, the work I've done to get there, it's going to speak dividends for, for my life and, and what I'm able to do. Sure. And you talked about the wheels coming off. So, I mean, I assume that you will stay very physically active long term. Yes, that's the plan. What that would look like, I, I've asked retired athletes that it's like what do you do on a daily basis and I get a lot of different results some athletes go right into it and and find another sport and you know stay pretty active in in rec leagues and stuff like that I I do at some point want to run a marathon I know genetically that is not (laughs) my uh, wheelhouse at all so that's going to be a pretty big challenge (laughs) at some point but I, I do I am looking forward to one day being able to have the flexibility to 
to figure out what's next. Um, my father swears it's going to be golf. I don't particularly <laughs> see that in my future, but you, you never know. Yeah. Maybe for the marathon, you could just sprint and then rest for two hours. <laughs> yeah. I, I could sprint for 50 meters and then get a ride the rest of the way. Right, if right. that counted, then I'm all in. This summer is just jam-packed with good sports. What are you looking forward to? Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, first, the World Cup. There's so many amazing stories that have come out of the World Cup, and, and I think it starts today, so I, I'm pretty excited to see that. The Women's College World Series just ended, which was really exciting to watch. Um, that was super fun. But I think there's so many positive things going on in sports. The WNBA it looks like this is going to be a crazy, exciting season, especially with the Las Vegas Aces. Of course, I'm a dream fan coming from Atlanta, but uh, the Aces look like they're putting together quite a great squad. And I'm an Aces and, fan, especially yeah. with the recent trades. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it, it looks like it's going to be a really good season. It, and I can't say enough about everything positive that's going on in sports. You know, uh, Serena, even though her exit from the French Open was a little premature, she's She's still looking good, and she's still someone I always like to follow as well. Yeah, she's a real inspiration, too. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. It was really fun. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great, great fun. It has been an absolute pleasure working with the Women's Sports Foundation. Thank you to them for all of their work and support. Of course, a huge thank you to Alana Myers-Taylor, for fitting in our conversation in between everything else that she is working on and training for this summer. As always, check out the show notes at hearhersports.com. With this episode, you'll find a link to the girls' coaching report and to the cute photo of Alana and her husband in the outfits mentioned in the episode, along with lots of other good stuff. I'll be back in September after the break, talking to more incredible athletes and women in sport, plus a few fun new things, so stay tuned. Our logo is by Agnes Studio and music by the band Goldmines. Bye-bye. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts.